If you have your Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 15. If you don't have one, just take the one underneath you, the blue and white one. It's all yours for free. And uh, if you don't have one with you, but you already have one, just take it and give it away to someone that you know needs a Bible. We, uh, we buy them for that reason, for you to take them and give them away to people. So uh, if you have one, open up to Acts chapter 15. We're going to be st- uh, in, at starting at verse 22, but um, I'll do a little bit of a review so that we're kind of all in the same place so that we know what's, uh, what's taking place and since we're dropping down in the middle of a chapter. We're, we're preaching through the book of Acts. We've been in it for, I don't know, maybe 35 or 40 sermons now, and so uh, we've come to the middle of chapter 15, and <clears throat> last week was... Uh, the, what we what we know as the Jerusalem Council, and it kind of goes into verse 22. So I'll, I'll do a little bit of review of what's going on in, in the first part of 15. So when we get to the second part here, you know what's going on. But let's pray, and then we will uh, jump in together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love and your mercy. Thank you for your kindness that you would give us your word, that you could have remained silent. You could have chosen not to speak, but you did, and you spoke to us by your word. We know Second Peter one twenty one tells us that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. And so while these men wrote with their own personalities, uh, their own abilities, their own intellect, their own experiences, they were still carried along by God. They didn't go into trance. It's not how it happened. But they wrote with their own personalities. But they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so these are, while they wrote your words, your words to us, words that we can feed on, words that we can live by, words that we should cling to, words that we should uh, strive and desire to see and read and understand because you've spoken to us in your word. And so we thank you for that. We pray that there would be uh, in our minds, in our hearts, a deep desire right now to want to see and understand your word, see and understand what Christ has done for us and believe, and trust, and obey. I pray for myself, God, and all of us. We're, we're desperate, desperate people for your presence, the Holy Spirit, to teach us now, to show us in this text what we need to see in order to trust you more, believe you more, obey you more, grow in our faith more. We pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts, and teach us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, we are in the book of Acts, and last week, as I said, we looked at verse 1, starting at verse 1, at what's called the Jerusalem Council, and this is uh, a council or a group of men that gathered together in Jerusalem to discuss what would be some pretty weighty matters. So, if you'd put up the map for me, you can see what's happening. This is an ancient first world map. This is the city of Jerusalem. You can see the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, well, there are some guys, Paul and Barnabas and Acts chapter 13 and 14, who left Antioch and went on a missionary journey throughout this region and came back right to here to Antioch. Uh, Antioch was a a brand new church plant. It was a Gentile church plant that happened in Acts chapter 11. And after Acts chapter 11, we got to verse chapter 13 and 14. Paul and Barnabas left. You can see at 13.1, there was the church in Antioch, prophets, teachers, etc. They were called together. They were set apart by the Holy Spirit and they sent them off. That's what it says in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13. Sent them off and they went down 
from Antioch, sailed across, went through the island, came up here, went through this region of Galatia. All, who, all these people were Gentiles. They came back to Antioch. At the close of chapter 14, you can see starting at verse 27, they arrived back. This is about a two to three year period on that missionary journey they went on. They arrived back. They gathered all the church together in Antioch because they wanted to let them know, we just went on this amazing missionary journey of these last couple of years. You're not going to believe what happened. I almost died. Lots of people got, ki- uh, got saved. The Lord blessed it. Not killed. I meant to say saved. And it says, when they arrived, they gathered all the church together. They declared all that God had done. And now he had, here it is, opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So this is a huge point. As we're ending chapter 14, um, they, these guys, Paul and Barnabas, when they left, they went to this Gentile region. Gentiles were getting saved all over the place, and, which, is, which is good. Back in Jerusalem, uh, there are people who are Jewish that are, that are Christians, but they come back. And then after Paul and Barnabas got here, these groups came to both cities, uh, same groups. They were called the Judaizers or the circumcision party. And they came to those two cities, to those two groups of Christians uh, who are in Jerusalem Antioch. Now, in Antioch, we have Paul and Barnabas and lots of Gentile believers. In Jerusalem, we have the important, you know, have the 12. The 12 disciples, all who are Jewish, the, the heavy hitters, the important people that, you know, you know from the Gospels. That they resided and stayed. All the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, with the exception of Paul and Barnabas, who went to Antioch. And so, the, the really important people in Jerusalem. Well, afterwards, these Judaizers came to both cities, and they said, here's the deal for all you Gentiles getting saved. Faith in Jesus, yes, amen, that's what you should do. However, all you Gentiles, in order to really be a Christian now, you need to conform yourself to Judaism as well. So yes, faith in Jesus, plus adherence to these Old Testament laws, like uh, what we eat, circumcision, and all these kinds of things. Understandably, the Gentiles, especially men in their 30s and 40s, 50s, whenever they hear, in order for you to really be a Christian, in order for you to really be saved, you also need to be circumcised. These 30 and 40, 40 year old men normally, uh, understandably, will say, what now? I don't think so. <laughs> That's not, uh, uh, that doesn't sound like a fun day. That doesn't sound like what I want to be a part of. So maybe not. And so we've got ourselves on, 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 a, on a precipice of people that have put their faith in Christ Walking away from the faith because of some kind of um, Old Testament Judaism law. And so what we looked at last week as we were looking at verses 1 through 21, John Stott kind of summed it up and he said, What means of incorporation is necessary for Gentiles into the believing community? What, what means of incorporation is necessary? What did they need to do? What did God intend for the Gentiles to have to do in order to be a part of the Christian community? Was it circumcision? Was it adherence to Old Testament food laws? Or is it just faith in Christ and faith alone? And so they decided in, in chapter 15 that, to say, well, we're going to, since all the, the, you know, the, the most important people down here in Jerusalem, we're going to get together and we're going to have that decision. So they invited Paul and Barnabas down from Antioch because, you know, they're, they're very important people by now. And everybody gathers in Jerusalem and they have this discussion. Should people be circumcised in order to be a part of the Christian community or is it just faith? And they talked about it and you can see in chapter 15, verse 7, it just tells us there was some debate. It says in, in verse 7, and after there had been much debate. So there was a lot of talk. We don't, we don't get the information about the debate, but what we do get, starting right there afterwards, are three kind of summary statements of really important people. 
Verse 7, Peter stands up. Verse 12, Paul and Barnabas stands up. Verse 13, James stands up. James was the moderator of the whole council. James was Jesus' brother. He stands up. He was, he was a really important person at the time. And they just give us summary statements of the meeting. And they all agree, circumcision isn't necessary. You do not need to be circumcised to be saved. However, what they do at the very end, James, at, while he's talking from verse 13 down to 21, he, he says... He says, but we do think this. We should, we should write, write to those Gentiles up in Antioch and we should tell them, no, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved or to be a part of the Christian community. Faith in Christ is all that's necessary. Those Judaizers, those circumcision party that came in from both, to both cities and t- said that that was necessary, they're absolutely wrong. Uh, but we will ask them, those who are Gentiles, to do something for us. We're, we're going to co- make some recommendations, commendations that we would ask that they would do. And it tells us in verse 20, that they would abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from what is from blood. So there were some Old Testament practices that they said, we don't want you to do that. And there were some Gentile pagan practices of eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. And they say, maybe you shouldn't do that as well. If you abstain from those things, they're, they're, I, I take them as recommendations. I don't take them as necessary. I mean, the whole book of Galatians seems to be pretty... pretty uh, pretty, I guess, obvious to us that faith in Christ is the only thing necessary. And if you add anything to it, it may be anathema. And so I think these are recommendations. That's where we ended last week. So we're moving into verse 22. What we're at is everybody's still in Jerusalem. They've just finished the decision. And now Paul and Barnabas are going to go back up to Antioch to give them the news. Like, here's what they said. And when Paul and Barnabas are going to go back up to Antioch, the Jerusalem council decides that they're going to send a couple more of their important people with Paul and Barnabas. We can see that they're going to send Silas and Judas to go with them. So all four of those guys, you know, by name that we know, with another group, go up to Antioch to deliver the letter. And in this particular text we're going to look at today, verses 23, 22 through 30, uh, 22 through 39, I'm sorry, 35, 22 through 35, we're going to see the contents of the actual letter. So, so after they had the meeting... They, didn't, they weren't able to Facebook Live it, you know, so that everybody in Antioch could just get it and like, all right, we got it. Like, so they, had to, they had to write down the, the stuff, hand it to Paul and Barnabas and say, take the letter back for us. And when you take the letter back for us, you can read it to them, let them know the decision. So everybody in Antioch's on the edge of their seat, you know. Are we in, we out? Because that's a pretty big deal. I don't know if I want to do this. Oh, man, they're, they're deciding what are they doing. I wish I knew. We're waiting, we're waiting. They're, they're, they're waiting for the, for the letter. And in this particular section we're going to look at, we're going to see the contents of the letter. It's not a long letter, but we understand what they decide. They write it down for them. Uh, But we're also going to see some other things as well. So pick up at 22. 23, the letter starts. But 22, it says, And it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, and with the whole church, that's the people in the Jerusalem council, to choose men from among them and send them back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas have come down. Now they're going to go back up. So who are the people they sent? They sent Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading among the brothers with the following letter. So Paul, Barnabas, Judas, Silas, some other brothers, we don't know who they are. They're all going to go back up to Antioch and deliver this letter. Here's the letter. We already know the contents of it because we saw the council last week. But here's the formal letter. Verse 23, uh, with the following letter. Quote, the brothers, comma, both the, I won't do that. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentile, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria. So they're, even in the beginning, they're saying, we're Jews, we're Christians, you're Gentiles who are Christians. So we're, we're, we're making cultural distinctions, but we're also 
your brothers, we're brothers. We're going to come back to that. They're, they're helping them see, even though there's some differences culturally, that they're still united in one. The brothers, both the apostles and elders to the brothers who are of, Gentile, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettlingly your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us to have come to one accord. Since we heard about these Judaizers that came and said you had to be circumcised, and by the way, they weren't from us. We thought it would be good to go ahead and make a decision and get back to you and let you know what it was. Verse 25, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men, to send them to you, our beloved Paul and Barnabas, who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. So we're sending Paul and Barnabas back here. We're putting these other two with you. They're going to read the letter to you and tell you exactly what it is. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and, uh, and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That's, that helps them see you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to be circumcised. And so then when they hear it, they're like, Whew, all right, sounds good. Um, no greater uh, burden to be circumcised. But we do want these things. We do, we do, I think these are commendations. We do recommend that if you're going to be in the community, that you don't participate in these things. As a matter of sanctification, as a means to grow in your fellowship, of, in your community, and in relationship with Jesus. Verse 29, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Now, that last one we talked about last week, but this isn't something that was like part of Judaism that everybody just understood, but no one else really knew. Everyone is in agreement here, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, as Christians, that you don't participate in sexual morality. No one should do that. And if you do, and if you will keep yourselves from these things that we just listed, you will do well. Farewell. And so that's the, that's the contents of the letter. And then it says this, and when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. It says down, and I know it's up, but remember, mountains, it's actually down because Jerusalem's on a mountain. And so when they sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered together the congregation, everybody, they delivered the letter. So now we're actually getting the narrative portion of when they arrived at Antioch. They gathered everybody together. They read the letter. And what was the reaction? It says, when they had read it, they rejoiced. Because of its encouragement, we can guess why. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So Judas and Silas, even though they were new to them, stayed for a while. They didn't just read the letter and be like, see y'all, we're leaving. Um, But instead they stayed, they encouraged them, they helped these people be strengthened in their faith by strengthening them with many words. And then after that, they spent some time with them. And then they were sent off by peace to the brothers who had sent them. There is no verse 34, that's a side note. I'll explain it in a little bit. But Paul and Barnabas remain in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many people. So uh, eventually, Judas and Silas left. That, that verse 34 that's not in there, it was probably an addition later. Someone wanted to make sure that Judas, I'm sorry, Silas actually stayed in Antioch. Because in verse 40, Paul's going to join up with Silas and go do a missionary journey. So he's like, oh, he must have stayed. But he didn't stay. He probably went down to Jerusalem. And Paul just went and got him and brought him back. And then they started their missionary journey. And chapter 16 is when they start the missionary journey. Right at the very end of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas are like, all right, let's go. And Barnabas is like, I'm going to bring John Mark. Oh, no, you're not. And then they kind of have this division where it says that Paul decided, well, I'm just going to take Silas. And I think Paul just went down to Jerusalem, got Silas, and brought him back. But the writer here didn't like that. And so some, some copier just, just added it in. That doesn't mean you can't trust your word. We can talk about those kinds of things another day. All right, back to verse 22. So as we're looking at this, 
as we're looking at the letter and the entire thing, I was reading the letter, and I think that there's, there's four things that are going on in the letter that we need to take note of. There's four characteristics of the letter that help people that are completely different. Those who are Jewish and those who are Gentile realize that even though they're different culturally, even though they have a lot of differences, but they're, they're actually unified. And since they have these amazing things that unify them, I want to bring those out and help us see those things in the letter. So first... Verse 23, it says, The brothers, both with the apostles and the elders, to the brothers. They didn't have to do that, but they did. They chose to, those Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, chose to identify themselves as brothers, but then quickly refer refer to these uh, Gentile Christians in Antioch as brothers, leveling the playing field and helping them see that we're all the same. Even though we're different culturally, and you don't have to do what we're going to do, we're the same. We're the absolute same. So the first thing is this. The first characteristic of the letter is that it unifies them in their Christianity. It unifies them in their Christianity. Number one, unifies them in their Christianity. One of the best things, so in this official letter, um, what they're saying to them is, even though we're Jewish, even though we come from the line of Israel, and we've trusted in Christ, and we could think, okay, we are, I mean, we are God's plan for Christianity, and you're Gentiles. You're not of the family of God. But you did trust in Christ. And you know, you're engrafted in, adopted in. You're kind of the uh, adopted brother and sister. Yeah, you're a Christian. They didn't do that. They took them, and the Bible does this for us too, and put them on the same playing field. You're brothers and sisters. We're brothers and sisters. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Culturally different, but absolutely unified. And so they put themselves on the same playing field. They unify them and their belief in Christianity. And so as I'm thinking about how this can apply to us, I think there's, there's several ways. But uh, one way is this. If, if you've been a Christian for a long time, uh, for a substantial period of time, and you're around a new believer or a young believer, the best thing that you can do is not act like you're on the varsity squad and they're on the JV squad. And one day they're going to they're gonna bump up to where you are and really, really get it. Instead... You want to immediately level the playing field as, as fast as possible and help them see as much as you, new Christian, young Christian, brand new Christian, think that you're in need of the gospel and absolutely head over heels with being saved by Jesus, I'm the exact same way. Your need for the gospel is no greater than my need for the gospel. Because of my sin, even though I might have been saved 30 years ago, because of my sin that I'm well aware of constantly in this process of sanctification, I need the gospel just as much as you. We, we need to do this as parents. Whenever you have uh, an 8-year-old, a 10-year-old, and you sin against them, the best thing you can do as a parent is go to them and say, I know you, you failed, I know that you messed up, I know that you sinned, and I know that you need to trust in Christ, but let me under- help you understand, so does Dad. Just as much as you, I need. So that they see that the gospel is for every person of all ages. And all of us are absolutely, utterly dependent upon Jesus. And there isn't anybody better than anybody. Instead, we're all sinners, but now made sons and daughters. The exact same with desperate need for Christ. We, we want to level that playing field as, as easy as possible. And, and it can subtly happen to where that doesn't happen. Like we can... It, Find ourselves not around unbelievers. Find ourselves not around young believers or new believers to where maybe even discipling them and be around them is something that's not happening. And they're floundering and they're needing us to come alongside them and help them see that. But instead, you know, we, we have our groups and we have our people and we grow with them. And then they, they have to do that. But they, they're figuring out with people 
that are younger, I mean, the same as them, and we need to get around them. Intergenerational hanging out, if you will. Those that are intergenerational, not just, not with their age, but even with their Christian age. If you're a brand new Christian, you need to be around older believers. Even if you're a brand new Christian at 60, and there's been a guy that's been saved for 30 years and he's 40, y'all still need to be around each other. We need to be around each other as much as possible. People that are brand new Christians and, and older, so that we can level the playing field and help them see we're no different than you. We're absolutely dependent upon the gospel. Don't ever want people to think that new Christians are the JV squad. And one day God's going to use them, but they need to pay their dues for a while. And that we actually got it all together. It's one of the worst things I've seen in the South is Christians in churches that, think they, that act like they have it all together and they have no sin. It's probably one of the worst things for new believers to feel like they have to get, have it all together in, in the beginning. Because it, it, it uh, truncates the trueness of the gospel. It truncates it. And it makes people think that, uh, well, I guess I've got to have it all together and pretend. And the best thing about the gospel is that you don't have to have it all together and pretend. Is that you say, I need Christ. Praise the Lord, he's forgiven me of my sin. And praise you who are seasoned saint and been a Christian for a long time for helping me and being real with me and realizing that you need him just as much as I do. They level the playing field here. They say, even though we're in that family of God of Israel, you're the same as us. You're a brother. We're brothers. That's the first thing. The next thing is this. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but um, they speak in really amazing kind of glowing words about the mission that Paul and Barnabas had done. So we saw in chapter 15 last week, after Paul and Barnabas did that first missionary journey where they went all around in chapters 13 and 14, it says in chapter 15, when they went to the Jerusalem council, before they kind of started the council, they let everybody know. Guess what happened to us when we did our missionary journey? Because they hadn't heard yet. You know, they, they weren't able to live tweet it the whole way for those two years. And, and so that, oh, we already got that. We read it. They weren't able to do that. So when they arrived to Jerusalem, they were able to say, this is what happened. We went all to this region of Galatia. We went to all kinds of people that were, I mean, pagan Gentiles, saw all kinds of people come to know Christ. And the, the Jews who were Christians in Jerusalem were to hear this and say, praise God, Gentiles are getting saved. So as they hear that um, about the mission... They're going to mention that in the letter. You can see in verse 20, we'll we'll start at verse 23. The following letter of the brothers and the apostles, we read that. Verse 24, since we have heard some persons have gone out with you and have done this, it seemed good to us, verse 25, seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men, to send them, here it is, with our beloved Paul and Barnabas. So they mentioned the Antioch church leaders that have come down. We love them. We know that you love them, but we do too. And then we even, this is what we think about their, their mission. Verse 26. Those men are men that risk their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know in chapters 13 and 14, they risk their lives doing mission. They risk their lives carrying out the mission of God. And so they hear that and they say, we commend that. We think that's good, that they would live lives on mission in such a way that they're willing to risk their lives. And we also want to be a part of that. We know as we get into chapter 16, Silas which I've already mentioned, joins Paul in the mission. And so there's a, there's a connecting now of the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church, not just leveling the playing field on Christianity in general, but leveling and bringing together that they're, they're realizing that they're also unified in mission. They have, they have the same mission, and they're, they're writing that and acknowledging that in this letter. So the second thing is this. Not only unifies Christians, number two, it unifies them in their mission. Unifies them in their mission. 
the mission, which we all know, uh, Acts 1.8, to be witnesses. Witnesses. To tell people about Jesus. To be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Or Matthew 28.18. To go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This is the mission. And so we all share in the same mission as them. Their mission is to reach the lost that don't know Christ, and they're seeing that Gentiles can come in. Our mission is the exact same. So the mission is to make disciples. Now, here there was unity in mission. And I want to I spend a, little, a couple few minutes here about uh, making sure that we're unified on mission here at Remedy Church. And I want to talk about what being unified on mission means and what it doesn't mean. Because we can all say that we're unified on mission because we all believe in the Great Commission. And while that's true, that's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. So we need to be unified in mission as well. So here's the question. Being unified on mission, does it just mean agreeing that we should carry out the Great Commission? Or does being unified in mission carry with it something more? Not just agreement on what we should do, but actual participation in it. We don't just say, uh, yes, I agree with you, we should do that. To show true unity that we agree that we should do the Great Commission is that we actually participate in it together as a church. Not just all say we should. So here's my questions I've been thinking about. How can we, as leadership at Remedy Church, get you to own this? How can we get you to own this? How can we get the church to have absolute buy-in? Is it buy-in meaning uh, the people that are coming to know Christ here aren't just coming to know Christ because the leadership are leading them to Christ, but because everyone is leading people to Christ? I don't think it's this. I don't think that we need more teaching. As in, you need, A, to be reminded to tell people about Jesus, or B, tell people to, how to become a Christian. I think if you're a Christian, you know how you became a Christian, and you can tell somebody how you became a Christian and tell them they can become a Christian. I don't think that it's that. And I don't think that I just need to teach you more. Like, like hey, you should tell people about Jesus. We've been going through the book of Acts now for 35 to 40 weeks, and it would have done that. It would have done that by now. More people would be getting baptized. So I don't think that it's more teaching. And I don't think that if I read Ephesians 4, it's that the leadership just needs to create big events for you to come and do stuff. Because if we just create big events, all you'll do is just think that that's mission. The, the two times a year that the leadership creates a mission where you go there and you do your mission trip, and you're like, woohoo, we did missions. And we're like, look at us missionaries. See y'all in six months. And like, we think that we're missionaries once every six months. But that's not what we're supposed to do. Like when we look at this, these guys are missionaries every day. So how can we be unified in mission, not just in agreement that we should do it, but in participation that we should do it? I don't think that it's more teaching. I don't think that it's creating uh, events, event-based evangelism for people you don't know every six months. What's true is that we all agree that we should be unified in the mission. But what's also true is that we're not all equally participating in the mission. That's not happening. So what can we do? This is what I want want you to do. Um, 
this week, we, we push community groups like crazy at Remedy Church. We want everybody to be in a community group because that's, it's, a, it's a group of 12 that meets 15, 12 to 15, whatever, that meets in a local area home throughout the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, some now Saturday, but Monday, Sunday, whatever. They meet each week together. They do life together. They study the scriptures together. They do community together. They do mission together. They love one another. They care for one another. They do all that, and that's best done in smaller groups. We, we couldn't do it on a large scale um, with two services. It wouldn't be as good. But in a small scale, you can really, really do it. Like, you're held accountable by them. They, they expect you to be there. They want you to be there. They love it when you're there. So I think this is the best way that we can do that, is this week in your community groups, really talk about these things. Look at my calendar this week. Look at the way I spend my time. We all have to work. We all got to make money and pay our bills, blah, blah, blah. We, I know that. And we all got to sleep, right? So that's, that's two-thirds of our week, no matter what. I got to work eight hours. I got to sleep eight hours. In general, some of you are awesome and can sleep four. Um, but, <laughs> but we still have a whole other third of our life, right? We have another third of our life. This is our, our free time third. It seems like the Lord has given us a free time third. And so we have all kinds of things that we fill it with. Family responsibilities, basketball, and, you know, whatever your, your kids do or uh, grandkids do or, you know, gardening, whatever. All that's fine. All that's fine. Hobbies are fine. I'm not against golf and gardening and, and whatever. I'm not against those things. But in that, there's also, you don't do that for eight hours a day. We, we have other things in our life. And I want you to look at your lives and really think about your calendar and saying, with that, am I participating in the mission? And not only that, participation in the mission isn't like, here's my work third, here's my sleep third, here's my play third, I do my third, and then God, you get that last sixth. I don't think that's what it means. Participation in the mission of God is actually to be poured back and we live our lives on mission in every avenue of our lives. So as we work, we do it unto the Lord and as we have opportunities with people, we share the gospel. As we sleep, we do it unto the Lord by going to bed on a good bedtime, not sleeping in, not burning the candle at both ends and, and, and really doing a bad job at all the other things we do because we don't get enough sleep. But we do that to the Lord so that we can wake up refreshed. We can be in the Word in the morning. We can do all these things so that we can live our lives on mission. And as we do our free time, we do that for the Lord. All of its mission, all of it is, is to be poured out that way. So when we think about unity and mission, participation and mission, I want you this week in your community groups to talk about that with each other. How can we talk about this and how can we do better as, this, as, as a community group. Have this discussion. I think it would be valuable for you to talk about how you as a community group can actively participate in the mission of God. Not just affirm that Remedy Church should, affirm that people should be reaching Jesus, but you can talk about, with my life, who are the lost people I'm talking to? Who are the lost people I'm praying for? Jack came to me between services. He had a great little way to think about it. Three, two, one. Who are the three people I'm praying for? Who are the two people I'm going to serve? And who's the one person I'm going to share the gospel with? You, you talk about your three, two, ones each week. Who are the three people that I'm praying for? Who are the two people I'm going to try to serve? Who's the one person I'm going to share the gospel with this week? Over and over, over and over. Then we're all agreeing that we're unified in mission together. That we're carrying out what this is supposed to happen. What I don't think it's is... When I see Jesus in Matthew 9, 35 and following say, look at the harvest. They're white. I mean, they're white for the fields. The harvests are plentiful, but the workers of you are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers. What I don't think he's thinking is that he means 
go once a month to, or once every six months to do something and feel good about yourself. And I don't think he means just, just pray that they fall into your lap so that you can tell them about Jesus. I do think he means that we have such a fire in our belly because there's, there's people out there that will spend an eternity separated from God and we cannot get over from the fact that we have been saved, that we don't need for people to create opportunities for us so that we'll do a mission because we have such a fire in our belly for Christ and we love him so much that we want to. You don't have to create it for me. I want those people to be saved. So because I'm a Christian, not because I go to Remedy Church, but because I'm a Christian and I love Christ, I'm going to do it. When we, when we take that kind of ownership and what the Lord's already told us to do, not coercion, but we want to do it. That's when we're, I think, really achieving unity of mission. Really achieving unity of mission. And that's what the Lord's design is. That's what his desire is, is that we would do that. So they mention the mission. They commendate it. They, they mention Judas and Silas. And then you get to verse 28, and they talk about that they don't have any more requirements, but they do have, they do have these things. So, so it's been seemed good to us, to the Holy Spirit, and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, 28 and verse 29 say, that you would abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, what has been strangled and from sexual morality. If you, do, uh, if you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. And then they say farewell to them. But what's key is this. Jewish people who are Christians have a, a different background than them and have a different way of thinking about things. And because they've been raised in the Old Testament law, they, they think that they cannot participate in certain things because it's always been a sin to them, like eating pork or whatever. And so they think that that's bad. And so they say, while you're in the presence of us, we think that you probably should not eat these things in front of us because even though it's not a sin, it feels like sin when we're around it and we just don't want to. And then vice versa, whenever the Gentiles are around meat that's been sacrificed to idols, they, because they came from that background and they, they used to do it and that's, I need to give up that former life and I can't eat that meat anymore. Those who, who can eat it and they realize it's no big deal, that they don't do it. And so we're all, because out of love for each other, not going to participate in those things. But what they're doing here from two different cultures is putting them together as Christians and saying, we do have a common interest here, which is sanctification. The, the Lord, because he's justified us, declared us righteous when we, do, when we put our faith in Christ and his work on the cross, we've been justified and we're absolutely saved, eternally secure. But now that we are, we have to go through this process called sanctification uh, where we grow in Christ, where we become more like Jesus, where we see sin killed in our lives. It doesn't save us but because we've been justified, the Lord has seen fit that we go through it. And we want to go through it because we want to be more like Jesus. It's not earning salvation, but the process of sanctification is giving evidence that we have been saved. And we should become more and more like Jesus by the end of our lives. And so, by mentioning these things to them, they're helping them see from two different cultures, from two different worlds, we're actually on the same path. So it unifies them in the process of sanctification. That's the third one unifies them in the process of sanctification. And so as I'm thinking about the process of sanctification, specifically in my own life, I'm thinking about, and again, if you don't know that word, it just means after you become a Christian, you all know I'm supposed to become more like Jesus. And I don't have to do it in order to stay saved because I'm already saved. I want to do it as an act of worship because I'm saved already. I want to be more like Jesus. I've got this stack of sin in my life. I want it dead. I don't want it in my life anymore. It doesn't make me 
have a better relationship or a worse relationship as far as standing with God. I just don't want it in my life because I love Jesus. I want to be more like him. That's sanctification. And you're going to go through it until you die. But I think about my own life. Whenever I'm walking through sanctification, I want to read some verses to you that I hope you will find extremely encouraging. One is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. There's a promise that God tells us, which is, I mean, absolutely huge whenever we're thinking about sanctification. For those of you that have been a Christian for a while and are walking through this process and you just feel like, ah, it's not going well. You know, like I want to I wanna be more like Christ, but this last season was just garbage season. You know what I mean? It just felt terrible. I want you to hear this, and you need to have this verse read over you, proclaimed over you, memorized over you. You just need to remember this. God is promising you something. Even though this season might not be great, the long process of sanctification, here's your promise. Verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, that's justification. That's the day you became a Christian. That, that started this process. He said, he who started that will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So you have an amazing promise from God that your sanctification, your process of becoming more like Jesus is going to happen. Whatever it is you're struggling with, whatever it is you're just thinking like, I'm never going to beat this thing. There's a big, long, huge, big picture promise from God that whenever you're 80 or 90 or 100 or 120, whatever it is, however old you're going to be when you die, that it's going to happen. I want to read you another one that's even more direct than that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. He doesn't say partially, completely. He said God's going to do this. May he do that. And even better, and may he... And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. All your spirit, your soul, your body, all of who you are now be kept blameless. That means above reproach, holy at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about sanctification. It's going to happen. And then he says this in verse 24. This is, this is amazing. He who calls you is faithful. God, who's telling you to be sanctified, is faithful in that process. And then he says this. He will surely do it. That's, that might be the most encouraging thing I've heard in a long time. When you're struggling in sanctification, the Bible's telling you it's going to happen. Jesus is going to make sure it happens. And he's got the power to make sure it happens. You don't have the power to make sure it happens. I don't have the power to make sure it happens. God does, and he's proclaimed to you right now from the scriptures, he's going to do it. So as we're looking at sanctification, and we're like, ah, I'm struggling The big picture thing is telling us it's going to happen. Now, that we know that, and that's established, and that's rock-solid secure, which is, I mean, absolutely essential and important to make sure you understand. God's going to do it. What about you in the day-to-day? Is it just, put it on cruise, wait till I'm 90, it's going to happen, don't have to worry about it. Here's what he tells us also in regard to sanctification. Since you have this amazing promise, day to day, this is how you live. Romans 8, chapter, verse 13, chapter 8, verse 13, and Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 say similar things. This is what it says. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's just saying, if you put it on cruise control, you're done. That's not how sanctification works. You have to do something. 
every day. Not because you're going to make it happen, the Lord's already promised, but in your life as you live, you still make choices. You know you do every day. We're making moral decisions every day of whether we're going to do what's going to please Jesus or, or not please Jesus. And he said, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. Don't put it on cruise. But here's how you should. If by the Spirit, this is because of God, you put to death the deeds of the body, that means sin, you put to death the sin in your life, you'll live. So am I going put to de- put it to death or is Jesus? Yeah. Of course it's God, but you're going to do it. How do you kill sin? Well, you memorize scriptures that tells you about that. But you also, you kill sin by, if you, if you don't eat, you will starve to death. That's how you kill sin. You starve it. You starve it to death. You never, ever feed it. It's asking to be fed and you starve it. And it eventually, it dies. Romans 8. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 tells us almost the exact same thing where it says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And that just means sinful. And we know that because there's a list of sinful things right after that. Put to death, therefore, starve to death the sinful things in you. And what are they? Things like sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Things like. So we have this, pros- this promise that sanctification is going to happen. We're all unified in that, and we should do sanctification together. You're never, ever, 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 by God, meant to live out this process of sanctification as a lone ranger. God never intended you for you to do it all by yourself. He's always intended for you to, to live out this process of sanctification in the, in the context of community, where with people you love and trust, and people that love and trust you, you say, this is what is going on in my life. Pray for me, talk to me, ask me questions, help me, and they do the same back to you. And you live that out until you, Jesus comes or you go home and you grow more and more like to be like Jesus. We're unified in the process of sanctification as we do it together. We should remember that in our community groups. But we're never ever meant to do that by ourselves. So as we're looking at the letter, first we see they're unified in their Christianity. They level the playing fields. Second, we see they're unified in their mission. Third, we see that they're unified in sanctification. The last one is this. Um, and it... It spills out from those things that we saw, specifically where he said eating food to sacrifice to idols, and you look at the entire thing. Paul is going to address the food that's been sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And so the fourth thing I want you to see is that they're unified in love and their need to love one another. Number four, unified in their need to love one another. So that's, that's really the whole letter and even 1 Corinthians 8. I, I referenced 1 Corinthians 8 last week, but I want, I want to see, show you something here. And... Uh, this isn't a side trail. It may feel like one, but so far we've seen we need to be unified in our, our, uh, our understanding of who we are in Christ, that we're all the same. We need to be unified in mission, that we need to be unified in sanctification. But we also need to be unified in the way that we love one another. We need to be unified in the way we love one another. We can all affirm that some of us are more mature than the others. That doesn't mean that we're JV and others of varsity, but we're, we know that there's people that have been Christians longer and as they've been Christians longer, they may be more mature. And we know that there's people who are weaker in their faith. The Bible talks about these kinds of people. It doesn't mean that any of us have a greater or less need for the gospel. It just means that we know that there are people who have been Christians longer that are stronger in their faith. And as it's talking about our need for each other, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul starts out by saying, now, the context is food sacrificed to idols. Basically, I'll just give you a quick brief summary. Um, 
these Gentiles in that region of Galatia, when they were getting saved, before they came saved, but got saved, they just believed in idols and pagans and little g-gods, all kinds of stuff. So they would go, you know, st- stab an animal, kill it, bring it to the, to the idol. They would sacrifice that thing, hoping to appease the idols. Some of the food would be left over. They'd take it home. They would get some leftover food, so let's throw a party. We'll invite all our friends. We'll eat this last little part that was, that was left over. Or let's not have a party. Let's take it to the market, and let's sell this last little meat that we had that was sacrificed to an idol. Whatever, it doesn't matter. The idol got the good part done. They came to know Christ and then all of a sudden, their friends were still doing that. And so their friends were, you know, sacrificing. And they say, hey, come to our party. We're going to have some pig or whatever. I don't know. So they go over there and like, wait a second. They're thinking to themselves, I'm a Christian now. That food was sacrificed to an idol. And so it feels like, it feels sinful to eat it. It feels like I'm doing something wrong when I eat that. Or they go out to the market and they're like, I want to, was that, was that sacrificed to an idol? I don't want that one. I want to get this one over here, that one. You know, I need to go over to the Earth Fair one that doesn't have, you know, the bad stuff. The, the non-sacrificed idol part. You know, you, see, you get the point, right? So Paul hears this in 1 Corinthians 8. And he's like, listen, um, there are some people that are Gentiles that came from that world. And for eating, and if they were to eat that, it feels sinful to them. It feels sinful. And you need to not try to put it on them. As a matter of fact, he says, even though you already know that I can eat that. It's just food. Food's food. There's no like bad meat, good meat. I mean, there's bad steak or good steak, but most of it's pretty good anyway. But like we understand, like it's just food. So if I eat it, it's no big deal. But for them, if they eat it, it feels sinful. So what you should do is if that food is being served and they're not eating it, you shouldn't just devour it in front of them because that's not, that's not, that's not right. Like they think that's sinful to eat it, and you're just eating it in front of them. Like, ah, I can eat it all. You can't. All for me. Like, you're hurting them. You're wounding their conscience is what he's saying. So he's addressing that in, in chapter 8, where he says, Now concerning food offered to idols. They had written a letter to him saying, We got this predicament. We don't know what to do. Can you help us? Paul answers in chapter 8. And before he gets into it, he helps them see. First, I want you to understand that love... Of each other is absolutely crucial. You're not going to get this if you don't love each other. So what he says is, now it's concerning the foods. We know that all this possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So you should pursue knowledge. Knowing things is good. That's fine. Be studied. Be informed. But when you're informed, you need to be loving. It's absolutely essential for you to love the people that you're around carefully and let let the love for them inform the way you're going to treat them not just the knowledge you you can eat that it's no big deal but they can't it feels bad so love them enough to not just talk down talk them or eat it in front of them basically what he's saying he says one other thing and i want to get to it so that's the first thing he makes is we got to love other people if anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know but if anyone knows god he is known by god in the deepest sense known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that therefore uh, there is no God but one. So if you sacrifice food to an idol, you just sacrifice food to a wood pole. (laughs) It isn't to anything. Like you could eat it if you want because there's only one real God. And he says, for although there may be many so-called gods in heaven, 
or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there's just one God. And so he's saying, it's really just food. We understand that. Those things aren't really real. And then he says this, though. This is key. The first argument he makes is, you need to love one another. The second one is even stronger, verse 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, here it is, here it is, and for whom we exist. That's huge. That's huge. He's telling them, the way that you treat people should be based on love, not knowledge. Yes, knowledge, but predominantly love. And don't forget this. You exist for God. You exist for God. And so let those two things help you and inform you and drive you the way that you're going to interact with people that may be doing things that you don't agree with, may be weaker to you. You love God first and foremost. You serve God. You exist for God. And you love people. That's the way that you should interact with people. That's how you can actually, as we're seeing this, be unified with people that are vastly different than you. Out of love. And so he says, we exist for God. Now, if you skip down to uh, verse 10, he, he gives them basically the, uh, he says that if you eat it, you're going to be a stumbling block. Take care, verse 9, that these rights of yours don't become a stumbling block to the weak. For anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his own conscience is weak to eat food off, offered sacrifice to idols? If, if he sees you eating food that's been sacrificed to idol and he thinks it's bad, will he not think to himself, oh, I should do that too? And after he does it, he's going to be like, ah, I feel like a sin. And then he's saying, if you caused him to eat that food, even though it's just food, he has sinned and, watch this, it's a double sin. Watch this. And so by knowledge, this knowledge, this weaker person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. So there's a double sin you've caused. You sinned against your brother and you sinned against Jesus if you decided to practice that liberty in front of them rather than love. We're going to get to some applications here. You're thinking, well, this ain't our problem. Thank goodness we didn't live then. It is. It is. Verse 13. This is what Paul decides then. Therefore, if eating food sacrifice to, to idols makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat again. He doesn't say when I'm around him. I'll just never eat it again. I ain't got to have meat. Something that I really like, I'll just do without it. I'll just eat other stuff. Not just when I'm around them, but my whole life. Because, verse 1, verse 6. Because my life is Jesus's and my life should be dominated by love for others. Not personal preference. I would rather unity of love carry the day rather than anything of my own. So what does that mean for us then? What are the things that we can see happening in our lives that would uh, be stuff like this? So that we could accidentally be stumbling blocks to other people and maybe we should be like Paul and say I'll never do it again not just when I'm around him but never do it again I mean the obvious one right is alcohol it's the obvious one is if you're getting drunk that's a sin anyway that's just a sin you're not allowed to get drunk Ephesians 5 18 can't get drunk it's a sin but drinking alcohol especially in the south can easily be seen as something that is a stumbling block to people we know that Jesus drank wine so we know it's not a sin to drink wine or any kind of alcohol, or else Jesus would have sinned, and his cross would have um, not been righteous enough for us to be saved. So we know it's not a sin to actually drink wine, but can we have the mindset to be unified that if something like a personal preference liberty thing 
were to be such a stumbling block to someone. And this may not happen to you. But if it was, we'd be like Paul and say, I'll never do it again. Not just when I'm around. I'll just never do it again. I don't have to have it. I have Christ. I have you as my friend. It's all I have to have. Can we be like that? Some other examples maybe. Uh, watching rated R movies and now with the, the dawning of Netflix, rated R TV shows. Is that, is that a thing? Could, could uh, participation in, in tobacco products, cigar pipe, hopefully you're not doing something crazy like dipping, but you know what I mean, like smoking a cigar pipe. How about this one? Language. Language. Sometimes we have, words are words. They don't matter. Paul uses scubala in Philippians 3. It's a pretty strong word. Maybe he cussed. Maybe we can cuss. I don't think so. All right? I don't, I, if, if words, especially bad words, cuss words, we got special bad words in our, in our house. You can't say, like, like, they're not really curse words. Like, it's just like, if it's kind of rude word, those are cuss words. So we, we've got an extra la- layer of, of pharisaical law in our house that I'm not allowed to say stuff. And they tell me, you can't say that. Um, they're, not real, they're not the bad, bad words. It's just, you know, the elementary bad words, right? Not even elementary, like kindergarten bad words. And I, I, I can get in trouble for those. She knows. Um, I, I'm the only one that breaks them. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> but can, can we say that, what about words? What about, uh, what about listening to secular music? Is it, is it absolutely essential? I'm not saying that someone should come to you, you're listening to secular music, makes me stumble. Maybe that's not the case, right? Maybe they're just trying to put their extra law on you, but maybe they're not. Um, how you spend your money when it comes to food and clothes, how much sleep you should have per night, uh, celebration of holidays, you know, Halloween, things like that, allegiance to a political party, these kinds of things, uh, the way you, even some, some uh, we could put laws on things like how you educate your children, we could put things on that, uh, that we just have to have a lot of wisdom around, and that the way that we should think about being unified is we exist for God and we are to put love above our knowledge. Yeah, I may know, understand this, this issue better than you, but I'm not going to down talk you and down treat you and, because unity is more important to me. So they address these things in this letter. The characteristics of this letter is that we want to be unified as Christians and realize that we all have a desperate need for Jesus. We want to be unified in the mission that we are sent out by God to do this. We're going to be unified in sanctification that in this process that we are walking through, we are going to do this together. And above all things, we want to love each other. We want to truly love each other and count, as it says in Philippians 2, others more significant than ourselves. And if we do that, if we as a church can put together some of these things and truly have these things in place, where we are, hopefully, the Lord willing, going to piece together many different cultures and many different kinds of people in our church that because we can be unified around Christ we can see Jesus do something amazing through remedy in this city we can see Jesus do something